Good morning, church. Those of you who made it, this is great. It's good to see you all out here. And for those of you online who couldn't make it out, um, we can't see you, so I can't say good to see you, but glad you're with us. Uh, Before we jump into the text today and get into the sermon, I just want to point out something that's not in your bulletin, but you'll find out on the information counter. We have a new proposed membership covenant along with a new uh, membership bylaw section that we'll be voting on soon uh, at our annual meeting. And so uh, we wanted to get that in circulation. We wanted to get that in your hands so you could have some time to look at it and and pray over it. Uh, We're going to have a time, uh, I think March 6th, the the date's escaping me. It'll be a Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour where uh, you can come with any questions you have. We'll have a little Q&A on the the new covenant, the new membership uh, bylaw section. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll head to a vote at the annual meeting along with voting on new elders and uh, other business. So be in prayer about all those things. All right, setting the context for today's passage. It's Valentine's weekend, uh, and we're going to be talking about a wedding. So I wish I could take credit for planning it this way on purpose, but uh, I cannot. God is, God is God, and he does these things, and it's kind of fun when he does Uh, John, he tells us in verse 11 that the miracle, or he likes to call it a sign, the sign that Jesus performs, it's his first miracle, it's his first sign, and it was purposeful. This sign was intended as a way to display God's glory, or Jesus' glory. We saw this in John 1. It's a way to display, to reveal himself. That's that's our God. It's in his nature for him to make himself known. And so here we go with Jesus uh, giving this sign that tells us something about who he is and shows us some of his glory. And this means that the miracles that Jesus performs, the signs that he does, are not isolated, independent displays of power for power's sake or to impress the masses. He's not a magician trying to build a fan base. No, these are signs. These are displays of power that point beyond themselves to a a deeper reality that can be seen with the eyes of faith. These are signs that point to something beyond themselves They can be seen with the eyes of faith. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to see Jesus' glory through the signs that he did. And even more than this, John wants this to cause us to go one step further, to believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus and to find life in his name. And that verse, John 20, 31, is on your bulletin cover as a way to tether ourselves throughout this series to John's purpose for writing. He wants us to believe and find life in Jesus' name. So as we look at today's text, we, we want to ask ourselves, where do we see Jesus' glory here in this sign? Where do we see Jesus' glory? So we're invited to come and to look and to examine and to see where is Jesus' glory here. So let's get to the text now. Grab your Bibles. 
Turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of our pew Bibles. You'll find our text today on page 1054. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that pew Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me, if you are able, out of reverence for God's Word, and follow along with me as I read this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the goodness and glory of which your son is the exact imprint of your nature. Thank you, Jesus, for your written word and that you are the living word become flesh. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus today. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Make us all the more like Jesus today. Amen. All right, so here's three ways, you can be seated, three ways we see Jesus' glory here in this text. The first one is we see Jesus as an obedient son. We see this in verses 3 through 5. Now, now understand that because Jesus and his mother were invited to this wedding, it's likely, we're not told this in the text, but it's likely that this wedding was for a relative or a close family friend. And another thing in our text that points to this, that supports this understanding, is the fact that Jesus' mother is coming to him with these concerns that they've run out of wine. And this just shows that Jesus' mother felt some of the weight of this embarrassment enough to where she would come to Jesus. So it's likely that this was a, a family member or a close family friend. She says to her son, Jesus, they have no wine. This was a a severe cultural faux pas to run out of wine at a wedding. 
Now, it's likely that by this time, Mary's husband Joseph has passed away, and she was used to relying on Jesus for many things. It's, it's unlikely that she was asking him to do a miracle, but just to, to help find a solution. Jesus, what are, what are we going to do? We need, they, they've run out of wine. I need you to help. Now, it's, it's uh, Jesus, you know, he, he doesn't respond by saying something like, yes, mother, I'll get on that right away. Here we go. I'll take care of the wine situation. Everyone relax. I've got this. No, his response, it's interesting. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And what's interesting about that, that phrase is that the only other place that we see that phrase used in the Gospels is when demons speak to Jesus. They say, what have you to do with us, son of man? And the fact that Jesus calls his mother woman, it seems to us to be rude and, and disrespectful. But this is just an example of our English translation just lacking the ability to convey the meaning of that word uh, in the original Greek that we see here as woman. But this address was certainly not endearing, but it was courteous. It was firm, but it was not offensive. But make no mistake, it was a rebuke. It was a rebuke. Jesus did not approve of what his mother was asking him. But Jesus goes ahead and performs a miracle anyway. So how are we to understand the difference between what he said and what he did? Here's a good way to understand what's going on here. Remember that this is the, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's the beginning of his public ministry. This would be his first miracle, his first sign. And Jesus perhaps sensed a presumption on the part of his mother that they're family and that he would intervene in this, in this situation because they're family. And so Jesus wants to make very clear to his mother, his brothers, his family, and to all those looking on that at the beginning of his ministry that his allegiance would not be to his earthly family. They would not control or oblige him. His power would not be at mother's or anyone else's disposal. Instead, he says, my hour has not yet come. I'll say more about this in a minute. But for now, understand that it was only his heavenly father who would determine when his hour would be. It was only the heavenly father who would determine that. And John says in John 5, or Jesus says this in John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So right out of the gate, Jesus is working against an assumption that his physical family may have an inside track of influence or of receiving blessing from him. We're on the inside. We're family. Jesus is going to treat us special or, or different. And Jesus pushes back on this kind of thinking. He does this at other times too. Listen to what Jesus tells a woman in a crowd in Luke 11. 
A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. Here's someone presuming that someone in his family, his mother in this case, had some sort of special inside track to his favor, and he pushes back. He says, no, that's not how I work. So Jesus is making it clear that the pathway into his favor would be through faith, not family. The pathway into Jesus' favor is through faith and not family. Now look how his mother responds to the rebuke that she gets from her son. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. This is beautiful. Mary shakes off the gentle rebuke. And instead of presuming on a family family tie, she now responds in faith taking her hands off and leaving the situation squarely in Jesus' hands. Do whatever you are going to do, son. And he tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. In verse 3, she approached Jesus as his earthly mother, but by the time we get to verse 5, she responds as a believer in faith, committing the situation entirely to him. And so here we see again Jesus declaring at the beginning of his ministry his complete freedom from any human agenda, any human manipulation, and that it is only obedience to his Father's will that he seeks. And this is such good news for everyone because this means that it doesn't matter what your family line is. It doesn't matter what kind of family you grew up in. You could have had the most messed up family that you know of, and yet that'll not keep you from having favor with Jesus. Amen. That will not keep you from having favor with Jesus. It's because it's faith, not family, that lets you in with Jesus. So we see, uh, first, Jesus' glory is is here in his radical freedom from his earthly family and his radical obedience to his Father in heaven. That's the first glimpse of his glory that we get here. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The next thing we see here, the next place we see his glory is as the perfect purifier. The perfect purifier. Look with me at verse 6. Jesus chose six stone water jars. We're told that these jars were used for purification. It was a common practice for the Jews to ceremonially wash themselves before going to the temple. But these washings, they could only clean the body. They were at best symbolic. They could not, they were ineffective to clean a person's heart. Now, the fact that Jesus turns this water into wine using these jars in particular clearly points forward to the only thing that can truly and completely clean a person, body and soul, his death as the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. Wine was symbolic of Jesus' blood. Remember his words at the Last Supper with his disciples, Matthew 26. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. John would write in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we know that Jesus has his death in mind here for another reason, because this is what he means by his hour not yet coming back in verse 4. Every single time in John's gospel, when Jesus refers to his hour, he's looking forward to his suffering and death. Every single time that comes up in John. Here's one example, John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John is telling us here that there's only one way to be clean before God. He says it this way in Revelation 7, verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is how we're to be clean. This is where we see Jesus' glory here yet again, in that he alone can wash away the stain of your sin. No stain-cleaning product on this planet can wash away that sin. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. There's no way that you can clean yourself up on your own. Only Jesus can do this. And the last thing we see is Jesus' glory here is he's the true and better bridegroom. He's the true and better bridegroom. All throughout the scriptures, we see God describing his relationship with his people as a bride to a bridegroom. Christ's people, his church, are called his bride. And Jesus' return will be a celebration unlike any other this planet has ever known. And this celebration is called the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. The Wedding Feast of the Lamb. And at the end of John chapter 3, John the Baptist describes his ministry as himself being merely the best man who rejoices at the sound of the bridegroom's voice. And he's talking about Jesus. He refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And so it's fitting that Jesus His first sign is done at a wedding because it foreshadows his own wedding that is to come. The wedding of all weddings, the wedding that all other weddings point to. At the start of his ministry, he's foreshadowing the end game. This is where all of this is going to lead to a wedding like no one has ever seen before. So Jesus now finds himself at a wedding where the bridegroom fails to provide. Maybe it was poor planning. 
Maybe it was laziness. Who knows? But verses 9 and 10 make it clear that it was ultimately the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine for his guests. And this unnamed bridegroom ultimately fails. He fails. And this is how it is with anything that we turn to in this world to satisfy our souls. Whatever you look to will fail you. It could be a husband or a wife, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be a career. It could be a political party. Whatever you're looking to will fail you. All the pleasures of this earth will eventually run dry and leave you wanting. The wine will run dry at some point and the party will be over. But Jesus, Jesus plays a role here as the perfect, all-providing bridegroom. And his wine is not only bottomless and it won't run out, but it is of the highest quality imaginable. He is the perfect, all-providing bridegroom. And the joy to be had in Jesus is unending And it's of the highest quality imaginable. It's sad, really, how in our world Christians have been labeled and painted as as goody-goodies who don't know how to have any fun. The devil has really run a remarkable marketing campaign to paint the church in this way. I've seen too many teens who grow up in the church walk away from it in their college and young adult years because they think to themselves, I just want to have some fun. I just want to have fun. I want to go out and just do whatever I want. And sadly, they don't know what they're rejecting. They don't know what they're walking away from because they're giving up something so much better. C.S. Lewis would comment on this in, in the, this tragedy, really, in the weight of glory, he said, uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But shame on us if we've given this impression that Jesus is, is the poster boy for anti-fun rule-keeping. May we repent and may we take pursuing joy in Jesus more seriously. If we really knew Jesus as we should, we should be the life of the party, church. We should be the life of the party to our unsaved friends and family. I did a wedding Years ago, it was actually my first wedding. It was for a friend in high school. And uh, he wasn't in high school when he got married, but it was in Canada at a vineyard. And 
we're driving around before the wedding in this limo with the wedding party, and the bride's brother, uh, he, he was unsaved, you know, and we're driving around, and, and he had already had a little too much to drink, and the wedding hadn't even started yet. And I'm sitting next to him in the limo, and uh, I'm just asking God, I'm like, what can I say to this guy? You know, I'm, I'm the pastor. Everyone knows it. You know, I'm sitting next to this guy. And uh, it, just, it just came to me. I think the Lord gave it to me. He said, so I say to him, hey, you know what? I said, you know what Jesus' first miracle was? And he's like, what's that? And I said, he was at a wedding. He's like, oh, cool. I said, you know what he was doing? He's like, no, what was he doing? He said, he was turning all the water into wine, like really good wine. And his eyes just got like really big because this is like totally blew his assumptions about Jesus out of the water. And he's like, this is cool. He says to me, he's like, you're the coolest pastor I've ever met, you know. Um, I'm not advocating drunkenness here. The point is that there's more joy in knowing Jesus than anything else that this world can offer. And the wedding celebration to come will be a party unlike any other. So listen now, listen how Isaiah describes this future party. We, Joe read this this morning. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This is the good stuff, church. He's pulling out all the stops. This is a, this is a real party. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. In the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Amen. And notice, too, something here. That Jesus, knowing Jesus is immersive, it's, it's an experience, meaning that it's not just about intellectually knowing that God is good and loving and holy and all of those good things. No, the Bible doesn't stop there. We are invited to taste and to see the goodness of the Lord, We're, to see that the Lord is good. In one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, he says this, the difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. Jesus doesn't invite you to affirm a list of facts And to obey a set of rules, he invites you to a feast. He invites you to a feast. You're invited not just to know him, but to experience, to taste and see his beauty and his goodness. Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult. Give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Are you ready? Will you be there on that day? 
Here's how you make yourself ready if you're not sure. It starts with this. First, you have to admit that you're empty. Your wine has run dry. You have failed. And your problem is more than a first-century cultural faux pas. Your problem is that your sin, in your sin, you have rejected Jesus. And you bring nothing to the table to bring you back into his favor. You need to know that you're empty. And the second thing is this. Just like the bridegroom in our text, he was given credit for Jesus' work. The, the, the master of the feast goes to him and praises him for bringing out the good wine at the end. He gets all the credit for Jesus' work. And so like that, you need to know that Jesus did all the work to forgive your sin when he died and rose again. And you need to take credit for Jesus' work. He offers it to you. He invites you to take credit. It's yours for the taking, and you receive it by faith, trusting him. Now, if you're a Christian and you struggle with joy today, you need to remind yourself of these same truths because you've forgotten it. You need to remember. You need to remember that you're empty and that Jesus did all the work and you received all the credit. He's the all-providing bridegroom who never fails to give us what we need and the life-giving wine of his death in our place never runs dry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are not the poster boy for anti-fun rule-keeping. Thank you that you are the true and better, perfectly providing bridegroom that will satisfy our souls, that cleanses us from our sin. We thank you for your work, your life, your death, your resurrection to forgive our sin, to wash us clean, and to welcome us into your family by faith. God, if we have been uh, lacking in joy, forgive us and help us open our eyes to see afresh the joy of knowing Jesus, not just intellectually about him, but knowing and experiencing him, tasting and seeing that he is good. And may that joy just exude from us in the world as we live our lives among our unsaved family and friends and co-workers and classmates and teammates. Father, may this world see our joy and want to know where it comes from. Help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.